Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. The music called Western Swing was born in the desert southwest. The people did not come together peacefully, but their music did. Spanish guitars and German accordions and African drums. The song styles of Tin Pan Alley and Hollywood cowboy movies. New Orleans jazz, Memphis blues, ancient folk songs from the British Isles, and romantic ballads from the wide open deserts of Mexico and the ranchos of Alta, California. The music was made for dancing, first at ranch dances in Texas and New Mexico and across the Old Southwest. People would come from miles around for parties that could last for many nights. Musicians crowded into a corner of the living room. Partners swinging through the kitchen and swinging through the hallways. Kids gathered in the doorways. Barbecues smoking outside, wagons and horses, and maybe even a few automobiles circled around the ranch house. The musicians would travel a circuit of hundreds of miles if they were good, traveling with guitars and violins and whole families of performers, playing festivals and wedding parties in matching suits or rodeo-style uniforms when they could afford it. As a musical style that grew up from house parties in the sparsely populated American Southwest. Music for celebration. The fiddle and guitar, the more the merrier, etc. The violin had come to the New World with the conquistadors, as it later came to Virginia with the English and to Nova Scotia with the French. In Spanish America, it was joined with the Spanish guitar, a Renaissance-era four-stringed instrument with a fretboard and tuning pegs. Well, it's not a Spanish word. It's a hybrid word. It's from Persian and Sanskrit, with tar being the Sanskrit for string and git being our modern American pronunciation of the old Persian version of the Sanskrit word for the number four, as in four strings. An update of the stringed instrument beloved by the Moors and the French troubadours, brought to Spain in the Arab conquest. And it all mixed up in Texas of a hundred years ago. Mixed up with any rhythm or style or instrument or melody that caught the musicians here. Bob Wills heard a lot of this ranch music when he was growing up in Texas. And he played it, too. He was born to a family of farmers and fiddlers... He soaked it up. There was a time when such musical families, Mexican, Anglo, Polish, they were crossing the dusty roads of the Southwest, headed to another fandango, another rodeo, another feast day, wedding, or funeral, or roundup. 
Records were new and radio was new and the only sure way to make a dollar was to show up and perform. Like it is again for musicians today. Make the people dance. As English-speaking Americans move west, whether pioneers or Civil War refugees, those chasing gold or silver or empire, land to graze cattle, crude oil, aerospace jobs, adventure, escaping trouble, whatever it was, the language of the music adapted. What had been exclusively Spanish and Mexican music became what we call Western music. Cowboy songs with a Spanish guitar. Western groups with two or three or maybe a half dozen violins, piano if there was one available. Horns if there were horn players. Old fiddle tunes from England were introduced, mixed with Mexican tunes, African melodies and lamentations. All kinds of music just exploded into being. In the early 20th century. As jazz played by small combos with banjos and brass, country blues in Mississippi, ragtime in the cities, hillbilly music, recorded for the first time in Bristol, Tennessee. Well, what if you took a classical orchestra and put it in a ballroom with a jazz beat? Why not add a Hawaiian steel guitar? Why not? Why not rig up some speakers to amplify that Spanish acoustic? Everybody saw the potential in those accordions and harmonicas from the Habsburg Empire. Percussion led to a jazz drum set loud and clear. In Texas, all this was cooking up into something that would be called Western Swing. Today is known as the official music of the state of Texas, to the point that it can be hard to imagine this music existing outside of Texas. In Oklahoma, in New Mexico. But it did. Western Swing was born in Texas, but it grew up in California. It was biggest in the Golden State. It was the biggest music in California for decades. It was what you did on a Saturday night. It ruled the live radio broadcast and the barn dance, the bar room and the fairground and the Saturday matinees. Now Bob Wills and Milton Brown were especially interested in a New Orleans two-beat that kept people on the dance floor. This pair, Bob Wills on the fiddle and Milton singing, had improvised together on St. Louis Blues back in 1930 at a house dance in Fort Worth. And right there, they knew they had something. They knew they had something different. They formed a couple of groups together, each one drawing bigger crowds, playing to more people through the miracle of radio broadcasts. Known as far as that clear channel signal would reach as the Light Crust Doughboys. 
Well, there was an argument about money, and Milton Brown flew the coop. He formed Milton Brown and his musical Brownies, which was the biggest thing in Texas until 1936 when Milton crashed his car, likely from falling asleep on another long drive between performances. He died a week later, and all the dance bands were swinging now, and they called it Swing too. Bands that could swing would ride a two or a four beat or maybe something fancier as long as the people were on the dance floor. The players took turns soloing, improvising as a New Orleans jazz, and people started buying a new kind of shoes, dancing shoes. Wills and Milton Brown had remained friends after they split up, and Wills based his new bigger group on the musical Brownies. With Milton lost to the highway, Wills picked up some extra musicians, too. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys proved right away they were bigger than Texas as they set up shop in Tulsa and took over a low-ceiling ballroom and the best spots on local radio. And on the radio, you could really hear the smooth, rich voice of Tommy Duncan. Just a beautiful thing to hear with his hot dance band. Tommy Duncan might be the best male singer in the history of American popular music, able to do standards and jazz, hillbilly and swing, novelty and cowboy songs, low-down blues. And he always made it sound easy effortless and romantic because it's romantic music it's about love and loss the frontier and the range the bar room and the jailhouse the twin fiddles harmonizing behind the story you'll listen to something like bubbles in my beer and you'll be amazed how like Frank Sinatra would do in the 1950s Tommy Duncan makes a sad sack saloon tune sound Dignified, if resigned. But all the while, Wills is making wisecracks and asides. And it all sounds too nutty to work, but it worked pretty well. It sounds great today. By then, they began looking west. By the 1930s, a dust bowl and the depression and the general restless nature of America meant people were moving west in droves. They were settling in Seattle, Portland, San Diego, Phoenix, Bakersfield, Modesto, but especially L.A., Los Angeles, which had given up its sleepy reputation as an old Spanish cow town and was now ready to start pretending it was an old Spanish cow town. It was in Pack Saddle Creek, Oklahoma, that a character named Donald Clyde Cooley was born in 1910. Cooley was of Cherokee and English blood, born to the fiddle like his father and his grandfather before. But playing fiddle wasn't much of a living, even though it was too deep in his blood to ignore his whole sharecropper family headed for Oregon, where he attended the Indian school, and he took cello and violin lessons. And then down they went to Modesto, where he started playing the bars and staying up late playing poker, 
even though he still had to work the fields every dawn. That's where Donald Clyde picked up his card skills and picked up a nickname at a poker game in Modesto. Spade. Spade Cooley. Now Spade Cooley could play the fiddle. Maybe he was even better than Bob Wills. Maybe he wasn't. But he was good and he was something to see. And finally, he got a job in Los Angeles. In either 1934 or 1937. Nobody was keeping notes at the time. Because Spade Cooley was a nobody and he washed up in L.A. with all of six cents in his pocket along with a new wife and a baby. Things were starting to cook in Los Angeles. New saloons and ballrooms and radio stations, great mobs of humanity out on the street looking for fun. Looking for relief in a world of insanity. Sailors and soldiers, Okies, nurses, waitresses, factory workers, truck drivers. Los Angeles was bulging with restless people in these years of depression. That became years of World War. World War in uh, Pacific Port City. That was expanding and spreading across the basin. People were even going out to the seaside now, ignoring the old idea that living by the beach was bad for your health. Honky-tonk neighborhoods replaced the coastal wetland and great piers and docks were constructed. Gambling and booze ships bobbing in the waters just out of reach of the feds. A spade met a western musician named Lynn Sly, who had some success with a group called the Sons of the Pioneers, and you could hardly tell Spade and Sly apart. Spade Cooley as his friend Lynn Sly was heading up to become something new. Uh, 
American entertainment icon called Roy Rogers. We'll have to close the gates on another Melody Roundup, but join us again and there'll be more music, the kind you like to hear. This is the Armed Forces Radio Service. Um, because Spade was about Roy Rogers' size and he had Roy Rogers' eyes and he was good on a horse... He worked as Rogers Double in the cowboy movies. Cooley wanted to have to go back to the cotton fields of Modesto after all, because everything was starting to happen. And just as the world fell in love with California cowboy music, that particular variety of western-themed pop song with Mexican guitars and fiddles, the best players were already considering themselves jazz musicians. A new kind of urbane jazz. Now is often white as black, but mostly playing for Okies. Now these players could read music, whether from a classical education or learned by necessity. And movies and records needed great orchestras and small combos. Musicians able to play any style be able to sound like the court musicians, uh, an Arabian Nights harem, or a German symphony, or whatever the song or the motion picture called for. And this you could hear in music that was relentless and adapting various styles. You could call it cosmopolitan. But the players and the audiences took on the movie costume style of the Western cowboy. Nobody liked to be called an Okie, even if that's what they were, but everybody liked to dress up as a California cowboy or cowgirl. And the California cowboys gathered at the beach with those grand piers at Venice and Santa Monica and San Diego came enormous elaborate ballrooms a Texan transplant and Los Angeles DJ called Foreman Phillips was known far and wide for his western hit parade and he knew there was an audience for something bigger than the honky tonks With so many talented and movie-famous musicians in L.A., Phillips rightly figured that he could pack them into these seaside ballrooms. Spade Cooley and his big band proved the gamble when something like 7,000 people showed up to dance a Cooley show on the Santa Monica Pier. And the whole thing was shaking to the point that management feared the pier would collapse into the ocean. What Bob Wills realized is that people in California were crazy for his kind of music, the musical style he originated, along with the late Milton Brown. But he wasn't there to play it. On the strength of the beautiful and romantic tune he called San Antonio Rose, Irving Berlin had paid a publishing advance to Bob Wills and encouraged Bob to put words to the fiddle tune. Well, he did, with help from the band. And the 1940 Columbia recording of New San Antonio Rose 
is a beautiful and instantly memorable melody played in the swing band style of the day with Tommy Duncan's smooth delivery and a mix of sophistication and jukebox heartbreak. An idealized and cleaned up version of the ranch dance. Now featuring an 18-piece band that Will's called the finest jazz men you ever heard. A band he built to do anything and do it with style. Everybody was playing San Antonio Rose in the 1940s. And by the 1950s, it was a beloved part of the American songbook. Bing Crosby did a great vocal on his cut just a year after Bob Wills put out his new version with the lyrics. Patsy Cline, Gene Autry, Patty Page, Ray Price, Les Paul, and Mary Ford, Lawrence Welk, and his Dixieland boys... Everybody did San Antonio Rose. The crowds at the pier ballrooms demanded it. And the jazz men knew it was great stuff, too. With Wills and his group still based in Tulsa, the magazine Metronome published the kind of review any jazz musician would cherish. But it was about a group far from the bandstands of New York and Los Angeles. It was a band that was the biggest seller on Columbia Records. So Bob, in an abbreviated version of his group, came out west to make a motion picture with Tex Ritter. Uh, People loved it. Most of his listeners had never seen Bob Wills and his Playboys, even if only five were there for the first movie. A year later, 1941, Wills and the group did their first Hollywood recording session, and it must have been illuminating to see the big town falling over itself to welcome these cowboy musicians. When they played the California Ballroom circuit for the first time in 1942, Wills realized he had boxed himself into Texas and Oklahoma because he was scared he couldn't make it in Hollywood, but he was incorrect. Thousands filled the dance floors and hundreds were turned away nightly. With a talented writer named Cindy Walker churning out memorable songs for the Playboy's endless series of cowboy movies, the style was now visual, too. Realism and westerns would have to wait because people wanted fun, they wanted hot music, they wanted slick costumes. And they did not seem to mind that Bob's Cowboy Band had a bigger horn section than Glenn Miller's. He could have stayed in Hollywood, but at times, Bob Wills lacked the confidence. He felt himself an imposter. He felt he fit best in Oklahoma, playing that Southwest Circuit. And he took the band back to Tulsa, back to Tulsa where complications awaited. Ex-wives, new wives, contracts, finances, and especially the draft board, which would chop up and separate the Texas Playboys at the height of their musical powers. If Milton Brown was the father of Western Swing, when people remembered him at all, well, Bob Wills was the king. But in the absence of the rightful king... Spade Cooley claimed the title for himself out in Hollywood. It was his to take. 
In January 1945, Spade Coolina's Western Band, featuring the great Tex Williams on vocals, released their signature song, a little swinging taunt called Shame on You. The lyrics are spades, it is said. With the music maybe composed with his bandmate Smokey Rogers. Now Spade grinned when he played it, but it still sounds too heavy and too mean for such a light-hearted arrangement. It's got lyrics that goes like this. This is a chorus, in fact. Shame, shame on you. Shame, shame on you. Two can play your little game. You'll find out who was to blame. Dern your hide. Shame on you. Hide your face. Shame on you.
Welcome back to Desert Oracle Radio. We're talking about a wild time in California when a strange and popular new music just took over. You hear a name like Smokey Rogers, and you think, now, who was that guy? Well, Smokey Rogers was from Tennessee, and by the mid-40s, he was an important part of Spade Cooley's Western Band. And he was a successful songwriter, too. He wrote Spanish Fandango with Bob Wills. Eventually, he and Tex Williams split off from Spade because Spade Cooley was becoming difficult. Smokey and Tex formed the Western Caravan, and then Smokey took some Capitol Records money and took over the Bostonia Ballroom, the pride of El Cajon, California, and the southernmost stop on the Western Swing Ballroom circuit. Everybody played the Bostonia, from the Texas Playboys to Hank Williams, Patsy Cline... Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two, Marty Robbins. And for years, Smokey had his Bostonia Barn Dance program on Channel 8 in San Diego. Now, there was a kid in North San Diego County who played mandolin. And his local bluegrass group opened for some of the big country acts at the Bostonia. And one day, the kid looks up, and Tex Williams himself is listening to the kid picking. Praising the teenager's mandolin skills. It meant a lot to young Chris Hillman, who would shortly go on to form the Birds and then the Flying Burrito Brothers. And it turned out that the Burrito's pedal steel guitar player, Sneaky Pete, had been Smokey's steel player at the Bostonia. And that's where he picked up the sneaky part of his name, which always unnerved Chris Hillman, wondering what Sneaky Pete Kleinow had done to earn such a moniker. Anyway, everybody supposedly loved Spade Cooley. His appeal does not translate today for whatever reasons. We are usually stuck in one mode of witnessing time because we generally see from only one direction in time. Now. From now to back then. Present to past. We cannot reliably see the future. And sometimes a person of note is forgotten not because of the quality of their work or the relative success and notability of their art or because their entire civilization or culture was lost or because of a later effort to steal their glory or copy their invention but because of a kind of psychic curating performed by the collective consciousness. A primitive but pure form of democracy. The quiet action of history's will. Today we might call it cancel culture, but it has always been part of human culture. The 
The thing is, Spade Cooley was not famous for a few months or a few years, but for decades. He transcended his era's limitations of race and class, and he jumped from medium to medium. Live performance, live radio, hit records, hit movies, and for many years, a hit TV show. Dakota accordionist and band leader who had a lasting career with his sweet champagne style, Spade Cooley's career aged with his audience. Like his friend Roy Rogers, Cooley had not only jumped from hillbilly music to movies and TV, he had also become a businessman. And like both Roy Rogers and Lawrence Welk, Spade Cooley would invest his money and celebrity on real estate ventures. Now, they say he was a fair and honest business partner. Cooley was known for saying, It's a deal, son, and being an easy man to work with, generous yet clever. After all, he got his nickname from an incredible three-in-a-row run of all spades flushes at the poker table. Spade Cooley and his Western Orchestra played regular ballroom engagements to 5,000 or 8,000 or even 12,000 wildly enthusiastic Southern Californians. Year after year, through some of the liveliest times in America. He was top draw in a swinging town like Los Angeles, where you could hear the top jazz acts all over town. Central Avenue on both sides of Vernon had the wildest jazz and R&B acts in the country and the whole world. Mingus and Max Roach, Dexter Gordon and Woody Herman. Can you imagine walking down Central Avenue in the early 1940s? All the cowboy music, the big bands, the pop vocalists, the symphonies... And none of them could draw a crowd like Spade Cooley could. He packed them in at the Venice Pier Ballroom until they could fit no more people. Then he leased the biggest dance hall in town, the Santa Monica Ballroom. Packed them in there, too. Now, a funny thing about Lawrence Welk. 
His first big hit was a cover of Shame on You, the Spade Cooley hit. And Lawrence Welk's version with Red Foley on the vocals. Top Spade Cooley's on the charts, number four to Cooley's number five. You maybe would not expect Lawrence Welk to keep showing up in a story like this. But Spade Cooley's later persona had far more in common with Lawrence Welk's bubble machine elevator music than the hot improvised dance jazz made by Bob Wills and the Playboys. Los Angeles was the wildest music scene in the world in that wild time. Composers who had recently fled Nazi Germany fled for their lives were now writing movie soundtracks and arranging string sections on pop records. L.A. had southern bluesmen, gospel singers, mariachi bands, Pachuco Boogie, the style of Chicano jump blues born in L.A. Dave Alvin from the L.A. basin town of Downey wrote a song called American Music that could have fairly been named L.A. Music. We had the Louisiana Boogie and the Delta Blues. We got country, swing, and rockabilly, too. We got jazz, country, western, and Chicago blues. That's the greatest music that you ever knew. But by the 1950s, Los Angeles music was most widely visible in the form of national music shows such as Western Ranch Party which was broadcast across the country from Compton. West Coast Western Swing was making its on-and-off transition to West Coast Rockabilly and the Bakersfield sound, and it remained popular even as the ballroom scene came to a sudden end. Maybe it was television, or maybe it was the weight of a sudden 30% federal tax on nightclubs with dancing. Max Roach says that's what killed public dancing. The real story behind the sudden end of the busy nightclubs full of happy people. This is one of the interesting asides and one of the better histories of country music in California, Working Man Blues by Gerald Haslam. You know it's a good book about California music when Dave Alvin blurbs the hardcover jacket. Hey, and if we're going to talk about books, there's a good one called San Antonio Rose, a kind of academic biography of Bob Wills by Charles R. Townsend. And you will especially want the greatest book on country music ever written from 1977 by the recently departed Nick Toshis. It's called Country, the Biggest Music in America. That's where I first read the story of Spade Cooley, 30 plus years ago. A story like that will stay with you. Well, the cops and the Chamber of Commerce and the Board of Decency didn't want nightclubs around anyway, bribes or not. The ballrooms, for a time anyway, survived the purge, but the weekend dances could not survive television and the baby boom and the spread of the suburbs and the tearing up of the city's great streetcar system that could take you to the pier and back again. 
no matter how much you'd been drinking. Spade Cooley moved easily to television after all his ballroom shows were really variety shows with special guests from all over the entertainment world. Why, you could see Hillbilly Sibling Acts or a rising star on Spade's KTLA broadcast, The Hoffman Hayride. And you could watch big headliners like Frank Sinatra. The music itself was professional and very carefully arranged with a few eccentric elements such as dual accordions along with the same instrumentation and music reading players as you might see in any big city ballroom band. By 1950, Spade Cooley's recorded music displayed this smooth and slick style to a degree that it began to lose its association with hillbilly and western music altogether. While he remained a local star in the biggest local TV market around, and while he was both wealthy and famous, you don't hear much about Spade Cooley in the country music history of the 50s. The hit stopped and did not return. His star vocalists moved on to their own Western-style bands. Like Prince, in his later career, Spade Cooley tried gimmicks such as an all-female backing band. But by the middle 1950s, rock and roll and an explosive variety of L.A. rockabilly had thrilled the new generation and left the older generation clinging to the sweet style. Lawrence Welk took Spade Cooley's crown on local television. By 1958, Spade was mostly retired from performance and pursuing his other business interests. It seemed natural that Gene Autry and Roy Rogers should expand from white hat singers to smiling middle-aged businessmen, as natural as Cal Worthington selling used cars with his cowboy hat and his dog Spot. As natural as a cowboy costume television presenter named Ronald Reagan winning the governor's office, as what happened a decade later. In fact, Ronald Reagan, Governor Ronald Reagan, plays a little part in this tale. A part that Spade Cooley did not learn to live about, because he died just beforehand, just before. See, in 1961, Spade Cooley had moved to the desert the Mojave Desert. He had a beautiful ranch house built on his property in Willow Springs, the far western Mojave, that corner of the Mojave under the jurisdiction of Kern County up against the Tehachapis. Spade Cooley had very big business cooking up there with Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm drawing huge crowds in a Southland hungry for entertainment. Spade had begun work on his own great theme park, a great theme park built upon the Mojave Desert to be called Water Wonderland, near his Willow Springs home. Oh, it would be something else, golf courses and lakes and water slides and restaurants and thrill rides and a huge custom ballroom for huge dances. According to the papers, 17 states were clamoring for a Roy Rogers Frontier Town theme park. It was the Amazon headquarters of its day, I guess. Well, Spade would have his theme park, too. If only he could focus. Because Spade Cooley was having a hard time concentrating on the work at hand. It was his wife, his second wife, Ella May. He discovered her, as they say, and then he fell for her, and then he married her. While Spade Cooley lived a nightlife common to honky-tonk musicians and tomcats, 
He remained married to Ella May. They raised a family together, and as long as Ella May ignored his wandering, things seemed to be all right. There are tales of Spade Cooley's accountant writing checks to as many one-night stands and side girls. The checks were for abortions. Maybe Spade Cooley could have become president after all one day. But what troubled him in 1961 was not his own behavior. It was Ella May. What he thought Ella May might be up to, that is, while he was working or otherwise occupied in Los Angeles. Now, Roy Rogers lived not far away on a big old horse ranch in Apple Valley, just past Victorville. And while Spade and Roy were friends and sometimes business partners, lately Spade had gotten the idea that Roy Rogers had a thing for Ella May. Well, that would be bad enough, but through a combination of rumor and fantasy, Spade Cooley decided that Ella May was part of Roy Rogers' secret sex cult. A free love kind of deal, the sort of stuff that most people associate with a later era, but this was Hollywood. And Spade was convinced. He got himself down, real low down. And when he got down like that, he drank and he drank until a beast emerged. And then he was Mr. Hyde, his friend said. He just left behind that smiling, fiddle-playing band leader. Spade Cooley worked himself into a long, long rage. He worked himself into a rage as he drove hours up to the desert, up to Willow Springs, stewing over Ella May and what she might be doing behind his back. What she might be doing with that Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. And some kind of Mojave Desert Horse Ranch free love sex cult. People did get weird out on the desert. And they still do. His best-known songs, despite the smooth and orchestrated style, are full of menace and jealousy in prison. Detour is some kind of frantic nonsense about ignoring a detour sign and winding up in prison for years. Like everything Spade recorded, it sounds both cartoonish and slick. But it's a story of a wound-too-tight nut job, verse after verse of numbing violence and insanity. Tex Williams has a vocal on this one, too, with Spade Cooley singing harmony on the chorus. As with most Spade Cooley songs, the blame is external. The detour sign is the problem, not the lunatic who plows through a road-closed sign and then commits so many unmentioned additional crimes that the judge gives him five years. The 1945 hit Troubled Over You has a sprightly opening, a very Disney cartoon soundtrack, with those increasingly prominent dual accordions and syrupy string sections. The story is a usual one for Spade. The woman cannot be trusted, the man is troubled, and also furious that when he whistles at other women on the street, his honeybee is angry. Shame on You was his signature song, performed countless times at ballrooms and on television and radio. It's an ugly lyric. It's as demeaning and complaining as a Billy Joel song when you think about it. The woman will pay, pay for her lies. She took his car and his money, tried to lie when he got wise. And then there's a hokey little bit of cowboy movie dialogue, Dern Your Hide. Spade Cooley was going to dern Ella May's hide. He would take his time and make sure it hurt. Make sure she knew that two could play her little game, whatever the game was. 
Spiegelly had so many reckless affairs that he was paying Hollywood doctors for abortions in the double digits. His manager, Bobby Bennett, well, she got used to cutting those checks. For decades now, Spade Cooley kept it together just enough. Looking ahead, it's fairly easy to see Spade Cooley becoming president, if you think about it. He was an exceedingly bad person, but he was rich in money and real estate, and he was famous from the TV. But the events of April 3, 1961, ensured that Spade Cooley's fame turned to infamy. Here's something about fame. It is indifferent. That is part magic and part horse manure, and should you cross a certain line, you are still a known person. But now the crowd is only there to delight in your fall. For a vain and paranoid and psychopathic man, the hard switch from beloved star to celebrity criminal must be the closest thing he felt to shame. Spade Cooley would later claim a lot of stuff that did not add up. He talked to Kern County detectives at the Mojave substation on tape for over an hour. He had a good defense later in what was called Bakersfield's Trial of the Century. Most of his claims about Ella May falling in the shower, about how he only pulled out some of her hair, about how she apparently admitted to both an affair with a UCLA professor in Los Angeles and being an enthusiastic participant in a Roy Rogers sex cult on the same ranch property where the famous White Horse Trigger enjoyed the finest stables money could buy, about how she had affairs with the two men Spade had simultaneously insisted were homosexuals. Well, most of the claims weren't possible to prove or disprove, really, because by the time Spade Cooley took Ella May to the hospital in Tehachapi, she was no longer in a position to offer her side of the story. The cause of death, ultimately, was that her heart was crushed by direct assault to the victim's chest. Spade Cooley stomped Ella May to death, slowly. He didn't turn her hide, he burned it, burned her flesh with cigarettes, knocked her unconscious, and then waited, swallowing pills and gulping booze until she came to just enough for the torture to continue. And then he got hold of his 14-year-old daughter, Melody, and locked her in the house, kept her right there. And these are the words Spade Cooley told his daughter about his mother, who was bleeding on the floor. You're going to watch me kill her. One thing you'll find in this world is that the most evil people are unhealthily obsessed with police and law enforcement, not justice, but raw power. Spade loved being around cops. He played any benefit they asked him to play in L.A. or out in the desert. When his Kern County jailers realized they had the famous Spade as an inmate, he was given the run of the joint. He ate meals with the deputies and guards and their comfortable cafeteria. He wandered freely, his cell door unlocked. He played music for jailer and jailed alike, and they overlooked the fact that he'd recently beaten and tortured his wife to death. There had been blood all over the bed in the shower, and just all over, really, and that was after he called his manager to drive up and help him out of a bind, after the nurse was called, after that, after Ella May was long dead, naked and battered and bloodied and burnt. The trial lasted a month and was front-page news in California, San Francisco to San Diego. Spade Cooley could have gotten off easier had he pled insanity, and for a moment that was his plan. But then they'd see his files, his psychological profile, 
Then they'd all know that Spade Cooley had come to the secret realization that he was, in fact, a homosexual, and he was unhappy with that. It was what he feared most, more than prison, more than execution. And so he sat there and smiled and lied and cried for the jury. Oh, he prayed out loud for LMA, for his children, for his dirty little sinner soul. He was 50 years old when the verdict was delivered, life in prison for the wrongs he'd done. I've always wondered if the song Life in Prison, the sad country classic by Kern County's own Merle Haggard, was about Spade Cooley. You might know the version by Chris Hillman and the rest of the country-western version of The Birds from the album Sweetheart of the Rodeo. The jury found the verdict first degree. They swore I planned her death to be. Insane with rage, I took my darling's life because I loved her more than life. Who knows? Once everybody involved is dead, you can't go back and ask them about it. Well, Spade Cooley went to Vacaville, considered an easier state prison than the notorious San Quentin, the prison where young Merle Haggard found himself for three years. In fact, Merle Haggard was paroled for his bungled and drunken attempted robbery just a month before the famous Spade Cooley murdered LMA. You can bet Merle Haggard closely followed Bakersfield's trial of the century. It was the O.J. story of its time, just as a young and still unknown Merle Haggard returned home. Well, Spade Cooley served only eight years of his life sentence. Without any wives to brutally murder, he was a model prisoner, and his fame still meant something in the law enforcement world. The same law enforcement world that was so furious about the Black Panthers and the hippies and the war protests... But they liked him just fine. By unanimous vote of the parole board, Spade Cooley would be a free man in 1970. And just to show how much the cops loved him, they let him out early in 1969 to play a police benefit concert in Oakland. It was a special treat awaiting, too. After his performance, they were going to bring him back on stage to announce that Governor Ronald Reagan had approved Spade Cooley's complete pardon. A complete pardon, like none of it ever happened. extra special version of Ernie Burnett's famous Melancholy Baby. Merle Haggard would get his own pardon from Reagan in 1972, having served hard time when he was just a poor kid in trouble. And then he'd gone on to a national career that far surpassed anything Cooley had done. Merle Haggard never forgot his time in prison, never forgot the poor people who made poor choices and always paid the price, never forgot how cops and guards protected their favorites. You see, the music that Merle Haggard loved most was called Western Swing. So much so that in 1970, he recorded a tribute album to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and he assembled all the aging, ailing Texas Playboys in California, made sure they were comfortable, made a certain dream come to life, a dream that Bob Wills had had, that the whole band would retire together in the Central Valley, get together and play music in their golden years. Bob Wills had his demons like most band leaders, but he was a good man, a good man who was always a little overwhelmed by the great state of California. 
Spade Cooley called himself the king of western swing, but the crown always belonged to Bob Wills. After Cooley went to Vacaville, there was never any more arguing about it. Bob Wills, as Waylon Jennings would sing, was still the king. Anyway, Spade Cooley never learned of his pardon. He did not live to be paroled. Spade performed for the Alameda County Sheriff's Benefit and went backstage and sat down. His heart had not been good for a long time. He'd already had a number of heart attacks, including a pretty good one after he was charged with murdering LMA. But this was a big one. Spade Cooley fell over dead backstage in Oakland, California on November 23, 1969. He was 58 years old. Shame on him. Happy Thanksgiving to you all, and good night from the Voice of the Desert.